Survive. Thrive. Stay alive. It's time to get prepared with the Prepping Academy Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Prepping Academy. I am Garvin. Across the table from me is no one. Tenderfoot is not in the house tonight. He again has other obligations. But tonight we have a very special guest. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys have actually heard of this guy, probably seen his videos, maybe even own some of his books. I own two of his books. Um, so we're going to get right into it. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but it's um, Dr. Arthur Bradley. Hey, are you with us this evening? Yes, I'm on. All right, great. Um, I can't do yourself justice because I was looking at your, your background, your, your books, your all this stuff. Um, could you do a quick introduction of yourself, if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So, um, so I have a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. That's usually one of the things that comes up when we talk about EMPs. Um, yep. My day job is at NASA. Um, I'm a, a branch head of an electronics branch here at NASA Langley Research Center in Virginia. Um, so that's my sort of my day job. My night job is uh, taking care of four kids, and I write books on the side. I write uh, nonfiction books on preparedness, and I write fiction books. I have a long-running fiction series called The Survivalist, which quite a few people seem to enjoy. Yeah. Um, I have lots of interests, you know, like probably most everybody, uh, firearms and martial arts and traveling and things like that. That's sort of me in a nutshell. So, um, so what brought you into this? Because you're known as an EMP expert, and what what got you in it? Is was it your job or your interest or just fear of this actually happening? Well, there were several things. Um, it might just so happened it was sort of alignment of many things the way life usually does. And at work, we were having a lot of issues with electromagnetic problems in hardware that was going into space. And it ended up there were really there was nobody at the center. There's several thousand people there, but there was really nobody at the center who could solve those problems. And so I took a few years to get really versed on electromagnetics and went and got certified through a group called NARTE, which is sort of the international certification group, um, and, and sort of really, you know, nose down, got involved in how you solve electromagnetic problems, um, what susceptibilities mechanisms were, that sort of thing. And, and that solved my day job problem. I got to go on almost every project we had at work. I got to be involved in sort of solving these noise-related issues. But along the way, I'd been involved in preparedness for, oh, quite a few years. And um, I started seeing a lot of information about EMP, especially on the web that, you know, was just a lot of guesswork and it wasn't very accurate. And I thought, well, you know, with my experience, I should be able to at least clear up a few things, you know, things like, you know, how you build a Faraday cage, does it have to be grounded, all those kinds of things, right? And, and so I started sort of putting my voice to that. And I wrote a book, a small book, but I think it's okay. It's called uh, Disaster Preparedness for EMP Attacks and Solar Storms, where I tried to just sort of, you know, summarize some of these things. And that kind of got me in the community, and then I've been on a lot of various, you know, different talk shows where people wanted to ask questions about it, and I've tried to help sort of disseminate what I think is, you know, truthful information to help people better prepare. Right. That, I mean, when I, um, 
when I saw that you were going to be in the documentary, the Black Sky event that we're both in, when I saw that you were in that, I thought, that's my end. I can get them on my podcast. <laughs> because I have a ton of questions as well about EMP. Because there is so much information out there that is contradicting. And right. um, they, they contradict them. And I'm like, what is the truth? And so I'm hoping tonight I've got some some um, questions from the PrepperNet um, group, and I've got some of my own. But as a NASA engineer, I mean, that's got to be a – if they look at you for this type, EMP pulse, protected electronics on spaceships and, you know, that you're sending out, I mean, that that's the pinnacle of this job, isn't it? I mean, you would be one of the authorities in the entire world, I would think. Yeah, well, NASA's certainly a great job, and, and it is sort of all it's touted to be. I know there's a lot of NASA haters out there, and I, you know, I've never been one of them. But um, the job is great. There's a lot of good technical work there. Um, my specialization when I was doing electromagnetics was really all sorts of uh, interference that comes into these systems, whether it's from you know, a solar event or whether it's from nearby electronics. or you know, It could be from lots of different sources. Um, but it does lend itself well to at least understanding the ideas behind EMP and you know, making it not quite as mysterious. Gotcha. Okay. So um, let's. I'm going to get right into some questions. Um, first of all, your book series. How did that come about? I mean, not your not not your factual books. I can understand how that can come from your job, and I guess that's how they came out. But also, you wanted wanted to write some um, some fiction books as well. Right. Yeah. So you're pretty much right on the nonfiction books. You know, I have a a big handbook out called The Handbook to mm-hmm. Practical Disaster Preparedness, kind of a mouthful, but that actually came out, the very first edition came out, uh, was motivated by the 9-11 attacks. I just, I felt like I had to get my family better prepared, and I just did an exhaustive amount of research, and I put it into a, a big handbook, you know, a big 450-page book, um, and sort of summarized what I learned, and and that led down to a prepper's guide, and then this EMP book, and but along the way, I guess it was back, oh, it must have been four or five years ago now, you know, I, I've, I've always loved writing, and I love good stories, good apocalyptic stories in particular. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try my hand at it and just see if it goes anywhere. And so I, I wrote a book called Frontier Justice, and it's the first book in the Survivalist series. And it's about a U.S. marshal and, and his dog and how they're sort of in this post-pandemic world. And you know, in a way, it's a, a story that's been told before, but it's sort of done with some interesting characters that maybe people haven't read about before. And the settings are all really unique. I do. I always travel to all the places I write about and so I can write firsthand on everything. And that includes underground bunkers and all, you know, nuclear power plants and everything else. So I wrote this series to kind of take people on a long adventure. And it's, uh, it's got 11 books in the series, and the final book is coming out later this year. Wow. <laughs> Wow, and 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 they all um, build on each other. It's a, it's a complete series, right? That's right. They're all okay. consecutive. Um, okay. I, I don't rehash the story. I hate books that do that. So if people right. want to read it, they read from. Normally, people read like book right after book right after book, and so I just take them right. For, literally, you can turn the page from one and go right into the next, and the story just kind of continues ahead. Okay, I can see that just cost me one hundred and thirty dollars on Audible. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot on that. So I do. I will have to tell. Yeah, I will have to tell you that probably the t- 
top five books that I ever purchased um, when it comes to that had prepper on it. Before that, it was like bushcraft and homesteading and survival. But the, I looked at my library. One of the first, it has to be top five, was the prepper instruction manual um, book that you wrote. And then I'd, I'd say top ten was the handbook of um, disaster preparedness for the family. Um, I, I bet I got them, and I was trying to think, and I even looked on Amazon. I did. Um, I, I couldn't find. I, I didn't spend enough time, but I bet I bought them in 2013, so five years ago. Um, I'm hoping they did come out before 2013. Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. I think the okay. That's, I think the first one might have come out in 2012 or so. Okay. But yes, they, uh, they were the first ones that I, I purchased. So in the top ten, both of them. So that's great, that's great. awesome. And so the series, yeah, that's an audible. That's at least one hundred and thirty dollars. Appreciate that. I did go. I um, did Glenn Tate's. I did a massive just within a month list of uh-huh. all ten of his, and now you have eleven. Great. Oh, yeah, sorry awesome. about that. Yeah, that's okay. It, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. Um, and I'm, yeah, getting, you I'm finishing about the up one too. Yeah, the uh, the Audible was really a, a a neat you know platform to get your story out now, and we got a a really good narrator for the story, so I, I couldn't be more happy with how that all turned out. Awesome, that's all. Yeah, yeah. Audible is costing me a fortune. I actually have two accounts. Um, uh. Never, I don't want to go in there, but <laughs> my <laughs> wife may hear me. <laughs> but um, so a couple questions I have. I have a survival group, and some of the questions we have, what is the truth about automobiles? Mm. I mean, yeah, is, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm the, the question's been asked so many times. I know where you're going, and the big question is what's going to happen to automobiles with an EMP, right? Correct. Yeah, you know, that's your question, right? Yeah, and, yes. and the answer is nobody's exactly sure. The, the short of it is that, you know, the EMP Commission took a look at vehicle susceptibility, a few dozen cars, and and what they found was that most vehicles, 70-ish percent, would have some kind of an anomaly if an EMP occurred. And and that's pretty bad if you can imagine 70% of the cars on the road all of a sudden having something wrong with them, right? You can only imagine the problems that would cause. Um, right. But that most of the cars, based on their testing, most of the cars could be recoverable by shutting them off and turning them back on. Um, and, and what they they had a little bit of an issue though in that they had these let's say 45 50 cars but they didn't want to damage all these cars with their testing you know budget is being what it is so what they did in their testing was they tested until they saw anomalies and when they saw anomalies and they said okay this one experienced anomalies and and we don't want to jack up the the fields higher and higher until we blow things out and so they left the the answer a little bit well, they left the question a little bit unanswered. What they know is that cars, most cars would experience an anomaly. Most of those would recover by shutting them off and turning them back on. But again, they didn't test the full field levels on all the cars, so they don't really know how many would be damaged. Uh. Um, the one thing they did know was that if the vehicle was not operating, they weren't able to induce really any anomalies in the car um, with the field levels that they tested at. Um, so, you know, if the car's off and they, they hit it with a wave and they don't really know if anything happens until they try and start it, the cars would start up. And there was only one exception to that, and I think they attributed it to something else um, other than the, the MP wave. So, 
So there's a little bit of ambiguity about susceptibility of cars. Um, my takeaway is this. There are so many factors with any electromagnetic wave coming in on something. It's the direction that it comes in on. You know, the vehicle's going to have different wiring and arrangements and what kind of metal body around it. It's, it's all very, very complicated electromagnetic problem. And my guess is that there will be plenty of vehicles that are destroyed, that controllers will go out and cars won't work anymore, and there will be plenty of vehicles that will survive by either disconnecting the battery or just shutting it off and restarting it. And I don't know what percentage that is, but let's just for just grins, let's say that 20% of cars had a permanent failure, right? You know, we're talking about a few hundred million cars and trucks in the U.S., and if you take 20% of even just the operating ones, you're talking about many millions of vehicles all over the roadways that would be essentially disabled and making uh, it very difficult to travel anywhere, even if you did have a vehicle. So it would be a really, really serious situation, but I don't know that it's quite the Carmageddon, if you want to call it that, that you know, oftentimes you read about in stories. Right, right. Okay. So do you would you agree from things I've researched and studied that CME really won't affect cars at all? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, coronal okay. mass ejections or any kind of solar event, um, you know, they often are compared to EMPs because you do get this geomagnetic disturbance on the Earth, and, and it can do many similar things than the EMP can, certainly to like the electrical grid or anything connected to very long wires or pipes, they can get destroyed very easily. But small freestanding electronics, and by small I mean you know, anything less than a quarter mile in size, so your cell phones, your cars, your computers, anything that's not connected to a long conductors like a grid connection would not be affected by a solar event. So a lot of people put stuff in Faraday cages saying, oh, you know, if we get a big solar storm, it's going to be safe in there. Well, it would also be safe on your shelf because it's not, it's not big enough to take that, that very low-frequency energy into it uh, if it's not plugged in. So CME mostly will affect things like the power grids or large antennas. That's right. Correct? Okay. So, yep. and, and the power grid, that's a serious one, and we'll get to that one. But let's go back to EMP then. Um, how about like transistor radios and cell phones? Since they're both kind of radios. Yeah, so there's two things that work, one against the radios and cell phones and one for them. Okay, so the smaller the, the conductors, the little traces that are inside of a device, the less effective it is or less efficient it is at taking in the energy, the, the electromagnetic energy that might destroy it. So, that, so small things are harder to destroy with that kind of electromagnetic energy in a sense because they have small traces. On the other hand... When they're small, they're usually built with very susceptible devices, devices that have really low voltage thresholds, so they can be easily destroyed. And the two parts that you, or the two devices you just mentioned, radios and cell phones, both have antennas on them, which are solely designed for receiving RF energy. So they, they bring it in and amplify the heck out of it. And so it's very likely that anything with an antenna uh, would suffer some kind of damage. Okay. Last, last question on the... Uh, the um the items, uh, com um, home, home computers and laptops. Yeah, so it's a mix there. Uh, home computers, it, certainly if they're plugged into the grid, I mean, the, the general rule of thumb is anything plugged in has a very high chance of being damaged. It doesn't really matter what it is. 
less so maybe big motorized things like your washing machine. But again, all of our stuff now has so many electronics, you know, fancy stuff in it. But right. pretty much anything plugged in is going to see a huge, and I mean enormous, conducted pulse flow down the power grid and cause all kinds of mayhem. Okay, oh. So we'll leave that as the desktop computers. The, the laptops are sort of a mix. Um, they're sort of like that cell phone. They have a lot of very small electronics in them. They're fairly small in size, so those, those things kind of work for not coupling energy, but they're very sensitive to, electron, or to electromagnetic damage. And they also tend to have antennas because they have Wi-Fi now and Bluetooth and those kind of things. So there's these mechanisms, these paths by which they could efficiently bring mm -hmm. in that energy. And my guess is most laptops would probably be damaged. Wow. Okay. This is kind of a fun question. How many times do you think you've been asked the questions I just asked? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a few times. The cars is always the first one, I think, because, you know, we're always fearful what happens if everybody loses their vehicles. Um, but, yeah, it, I mean, these are questions that are asked a lot, and you'll get different answers from different people. I'm, I'm just basing my answers on my knowledge of electromagnetics. Okay. So here's a question um, that's kind of out of the box, um, if you don't mind sharing. What kind of items do you protect in your preparedness? Yeah, so from electromagnetic pulse, I guess you're saying, right? Yes, yes. So, yeah. so, so if we can see that you're protecting them, we should know, hey, we should protect them devices as well. Right. So, you know, there are every family has different needs, and I, I would caution everybody, you know, don't use my list, you know, use your list, but... You have to think through, like all preparedness things, you have to think through what it is you're trying to, to do after the fact, right? And so certainly, like I said, anything with antennas on them are very likely to be damaged. So having a good set of radios in a Faraday cage is a good idea, something that you could do short-range communications. Um, if you had any kind of medical needs, you know, those are the kind of things you can't afford a failure without having some kind of a backup, Right. And so, right. if you, you know, insulin pumps or anything that required electronics, um, I've had people in wheelchairs that have like little controller circuits and things that they said, you know, if my wheelchair goes, I'm just done. I don't have another way to survive. And so they would store the most important things that they thought they couldn't live without uh, in those Faraday cages. Um, and my list is pretty short. I don't have any medical conditions. So I tend to focus more on being uh, communication is a big issue for me. Um, I, you know, your flashlights are not particularly vulnerable, but with the new LED ones, they could be damaged. So I keep flashlights in there. I keep uh, two-way radios and shortwave radios. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is communication for me. Um, mm -hmm. That tends to be. I also keep some uh, recharge device in there. They help me recharge batteries. I don't want to lose my ability to recharge uh, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's small stuff that I just think would make me a bit more functional. Um, I do protect other things in other ways, um, and, and I talk about some of this on my website, disasterpreparer.com. But ways you can protect electronics that's in use using things like ferrites. Um, you know, and so I try and protect things that I can't afford to put in a Faraday cage, um, right. but that are also very important to me. And maybe later we can talk about some of those steps. Absolutely. We're going to. I got you touched on. I had four questions from one guy on our mm -hmm. website. His name's, his name's Cody. He asked about LED flashlights, night vision goggles, and chargers. Not, you know, yeah. you know how a lot of devices have a charger with a, I guess it's a transformer built into the plug or something. Mm -hmm, and sure. then also he said solar panels. Yeah. Okay. So let's see if we can take those one at a time. So 
LED flashlights, like I said, they're, I wouldn't say they're very susceptible, but they do. You know, the wires in an LED flashlight might be six inches long or so, and that's long enough to take in some energy. Um, LEDs aren't easy, easy to blow out, but you can blow them out. So I keep LED flashlights in mind. So that that would be okay. part of the short answer there. Okay. Um, you ask about uh, what was the next one? I forgot the order there. Night vision goggles. Ah, night vision goggles. Yeah. So night vision goggles are very similar to like electro optic sort of things that you might put on your rifle. You know, like a red dot or something like that. Um, you know, they're very expensive typically. Um, they're they're considered susceptible because they have quite a bit of processing circuitry in there. And even though they're small, night vision goggle electronics are relatively small too, it, the cost is high enough that if I, I don't have night vision goggles, but if I did, I would keep them in some kind of protective enclosure. It's just, there's just too much risk and also the fact of it might be something you really considered important you know, after an event, having some kind of night vision like that might be very important. So I would say that's probably worth storing. Okay, and the next one was like chargers for like the your 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 cell phone, your yep. um, handheld walkie-talkies. Yeah, so I tend to keep chargers uh, in the Faraday cage. I mentioned that a minute ago, just because they're not the you know the kind I'm thinking of the type you can plug into the wall and do rechargeable batteries or plug your right. cell phone in and quickly recharge it. It's a it's an easy thing, low cost to store, and I think it's just a good safety precaution. Um, it, you know, batteries by themselves, a lot of people ask me, would you keep batteries in a Faraday cage? And the short answer is no, you don't need to. Chemical cell batteries aren't going to be damaged by a, an EMP unless they're in a device. If they're connected to long conductors, again, mm. that huge conductive pulse can take them out. But not the radiated energy won't. And so I don't store batteries, but I do store ways uh, to recharge my battery should it come to that. Okay, and the last one was solar panels. Yeah, so... So solar panels is a question I do get asked a lot about, um, and I had to dig out. I, I had to dig out an expert, find an expert to get what I thought was a reasonable answer. So I reached out to a guy named Tom Brennan, and he'll probably hear this podcast. So, so I'll, I always mention his name and his company. His company is Solark, and anybody who's in the EMP protected solar systems knows that company. They're sort of the one game in town yep. that builds true EMP tested solar generation systems. So great for them. And I called him up, and Tom was gracious enough to spend a half hour on the phone with me or so. And, and what he summarized to me was that in their testing, freestanding solar panels, panels that are just not connected to anything else, were not damaged by an EMP wave. That was great data to have, like real like hand-holding data, right? This is stuff I can let right. you know now. However, as soon as they hooked all the cables up where it runs over to the charge controller and the inverter and all that, <laughs> then they were damaged. And so it was sort of a yes and a no. Um, if you have your solar panels stored away somewhere and they're not connected, all, you know, assuming his data is right for your solar panels, then they're probably not that susceptible. Um, but if they're connected up to your system and all that, then there probably is a susceptibility. And, again, we can talk about what you might do for that, but that's sort of the, the takeaway on that. Right. Okay. Awesome information. One last um a, a subheading of the solar panels. How about the little um, little um, panels to charge um, batteries, like A8, you know, AA batteries, like the Gold Zero? Um, oh, yeah. No, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, like Kodiak okay. and the – yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in fact, it's interesting. I um, It's just coincidence. I actually spoke to one of the – I guess the VP of marketing or something at Kodiak 
I guess it's actually like energy system, but they sell the Kodiak, which is very similar to that Goal Zero. And there's these, you know, sort of these portable solar generation systems, right? You have you put your little panels out and you hook it up to this little sort of suitcase-sized unit that's right. got the inverter and the charge control, and really nice, very high quality. Both of those brands are very good. Um, and I asked him same questions, and they hadn't done EMP testing, so he didn't have that data. But what I do know is that they sell. Um, EMP bags for their system, and I'm sure Goal Zero does too, okay. where essentially you could safely store them away. And I think that would be a, a prudent thing to do. Okay. Next question is, um, we're going to talk about the Faraday cage. We'll talk about the um, your EMP storm and some of these other things as well. Next question is, is the ammo can by itself with the rubber gasket, is it a Faraday cage? Uh, yes, it is. It's, you know, there's a lot of things that are Faraday cage. doesn't mean they're a great one. doesn't mean they're like, you know, going to provide perfect shielding for you, but I have tested ammo cans. I, you know, you know, my YouTube channel, um, disaster yeah. prepper, if anybody searches that and, and I test various things. I did it for one of my books. I want to know how good do these, like, what about a safe or a microwave oven or, you know, and I, I tested them in my lab. I'm just fortunate enough to have access to test equipment where I can do that. And what I found was that an ammo can with the, you know, like a big ammo can, like a big 50 cal ammo can with the rubber gasket in it does, you know, does a mediocre job of shielding, let's say 20, 30 dB, okay, which is something. I mean, that reduces the fields by 90-something percent, 90 to 95%. So that's certainly good, right? That's way better than nothing. But if you really want to get a good Faraday cage where you like 50 plus dB, right, 99.7% or so, you have to take out the rubber gasket and put in a conductive gasket, and then and then you can close it, and the conductive gasket will make contact with the top of the can. And I have a, some pictures on my website about how you do that, and, and I offer those gaskets, but you can find them yourself. I'm not hawking gaskets. But you just have to get the right size that fits in your ammo cans, and you can create a really solid you know, 50, 60, 70 dB shielding with a good ammo can. So they can be made very good. Great. Awesome. Okay. So tell us, uh, I've seen your videos. Um, what is the best way um, people can protect their devices um, that you've tested? In terms of like small, small devices? Uh, small to laptops to, you know, um, HF or, you know, hand equipment, things like that. I see. Yeah. So if you can build a Faraday cage out of, you know, a lot of people build them out of these galvanized garbage cans um, because they're cheap. You can go buy a garbage can for 30 bucks or something. And you can buy a little, again, if you, if you just measure the garbage can by itself, you get mediocre shielding. But if you put in a conductive gasket around the, the lid, it does a remarkable job. You can get a great, a great Faraday cage for low dollars. And usually a good garbage can or two is enough for people to store whatever they need in. Now, it's not the only way. Like I said, there are many ways to make these conductive enclosures, but those tend to be pretty good. They work well. Now, some things, you know, they're, they're oddly shaped or they're too big to put in, a, in a, some kind of a small enclosure. And there are other ways people do. Um, you can buy conductive cloth. Um, I sell some through the website, but you can look around. There's lots of different brands. It's not cheap, okay? It's not cheap, but it, it, is, it has its place. So, a lot of times what people will do is, um, like, for example, I mentioned electro-optics, like your rifle sight, right? Maybe you have a, a red dot or something. 
you can take a one foot by five foot section of that cloth, and I show a video on my website, and you can wrap that around your, while it's on your rifle, you can wrap it around your rifle and create a little shielding barrier between your electro-optic and the outside world. And while it's not a guarantee, it does a, you know, a much better chance of surviving if it's protected like that. Um, people, another good example is gun safes. People buy these gun safes, and, and, and I just recently bought one. I bought a Zanotti Armor one, and I bought it specifically because it's modular. You can take it apart, but also because it's mechanical. The, the locking and all that mechanism is mechanical. And nowadays, everybody, you know, there's all these little digital keypads, and those are prone to being damaged. And, of course, what happens when you, you know, if it destroys your keypad, you may have trouble getting in your safe. So people, what they'll do is people will buy a, a strip of that conductive cloth, and they'll either magnetically stick it to their safe over their keypad, or they'll drape it down like a curtain around the front of their safe. And that's, you know, that's, again, that's the use of this kind of conductive cloth to help reduce the fields. So there's some various various things like that, sort of some clever ways. If you're on a budget, you know, aluminum foil is your best friend, right? You can always get aluminum right. foil. It yep. does a good job, um, and you can wrap up anything you want with it. Um, just be sure you don't wrap it up where it's touching exposed metal in the device like a charge port or an antenna. Okay, so in every vehicle that I own, I have a, a, um, a ham radio. I put it in the two Ziploc bags and then wrapped it five different ways in tinfoil. Am I good? Yeah. yeah, you're good. I'm good. Okay, yeah. great. Awesome. Yeah, you should be good. Okay. Yeah, so you mentioned it, Ziploc bags. I don't know if you're talking about like the conductive bags, what people call no. EMP or EMP bags. Just regular Ziploc, no. right? Yeah, that's just to protect it from the tinfoil so they won't touch. Yeah, yeah. So the other way you could have done is there's these metalized bags. Now, it sounds like they're, people think they're metal to the touch, but they're not. They're, they're encased in plastic. It's a sputtered metal, but inside the plastic. But they do a great job. So what we store our electronics in at work. So when you get something very sensitive, you'll put it in these metalized bags. They're called EMP oh. bags, what I've been calling them on my website. But, and then they either fold over and tape, or you can zip them up if they have a Ziploc. And those do very well. If you get the right kind, you can get 50 dB of shielding out of one of those bags. Um, so it's a really simple way to store, you know, just small things. Um, and there's even some bags out now that I can get that are three feet by two feet. So they're, you know, they're pretty good sized bags. You could store quite a bit of things in there. So, and you, and you have them on your website. And we'll, I, I saw the different th- products you have. We'll talk about that in a minute because you do have some things that I've been looking for on your website. So, um, so uh, the next question is, um, you said ammo can, garbage can you wouldn't recommend. How about um, metal filing cabinets? Yeah, so just to be clear, the, the, the garbage can is fine if you put in a conductive gasket. I think it's great. Um, the okay. filing cabinet, I've never tested. Um, I've been asked about it a few times. Um, my guess is it's not so good because it has a lot of seams and you know where the drawers come in and out, right? And it's a really fun experiment, um, and I, I do this on occasion for people. If you, for example, if you make a Faraday cage, a good one, let's say I have a, a big old uh, garbage can, and you put up the, you know, the little liner in and the, put the gasket in, everything's perfect. You're getting 60 dB of shielding. And I always ask you, I'll say, okay, now what happens if I take my drill and I start drilling quarter-inch holes in this thing? What's going to happen? Right. And, and everybody will say, ah, oh, you know, you're just, it's going to go terrible. The shielding's going to be terrible. And it's interesting that it does not do that. If you drill holes in it, you won't notice the shielding go down hardly at all. And it's the, the point of it is small holes don't degrade the performance of a Faraday cage. 
it's long, thin seams that destroy the Faraday cage's shielding. So, unfortunately, a filing cabinet has lots of those long, thin seams, and they act as slot antennas right. that very efficiently bring the energy in. And so, I don't think it would work very well for that reason. Okay. I've got a couple questions for you from our members of PrepperNet, if you don't mind. Um, sure. One guy's named Cowboy. He just wants to know, has the United States government started to um, protect our nuclear plants from EMPs? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I, as part of my research, I had a question when I was writing about one of my survivalist books. The characters go to a uh, a nuclear power plant that's sort of been evacuated. And I wanted to know that question, too. Um, so I called one of the nuclear power plant people and spoke to one of the managers. And he was so gracious, probably spent two hours on the phone with me answering these questions. And he went down through the list of their various safety mechanisms, you know, the, the deadfall tripping of the, of the reactor itself. You know, within a second, the, the process would be stopped. It would take three days to cool before they could evacuate, but it would be stopped immediately. And he went down through all these various processes of safety, you know, the, the last of which you, you, you blow the dam or you flood the system, right? And that's why they're near water a lot of times. And I came away with the feeling that unless things went, you know, a catastrophic series of errors, and it's not that it couldn't happen, but in, as long as somebody had their eye on it, they could keep the nuclear power plants from, from melting down. The problem is there's 99 of them, right? So right. you have 100 of these of these potential huge problems out there. And the country is going to have zero communication, essentially, and lots and lots of worries and lots and lots of people starving and lots and lots of people dying of dehydration. I mean, just the, the problems are going to be enormous. So would there be that catastrophic sequence of events that caused one or more to go? I don't know. Um, you know, he told me, oh, there's no way, you know, we've got all these mechanisms. And, and he, that's his job, to tell me I'm safe, I'm glad. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think under any normal circumstance, he's right. Um, but given all of the other things, their generators need fuel, and no, that fuel needs transportation, that transportation has to have people, you know, there's a, there's a dependency that, would, that could fall apart, and we could end up in real trouble. You know, what people may not realize is that the fuel rods, at least in the United States, um, have to be kept cool, and they're usually stored on site. And so they replace these fuel rods in these reactors every few months. Uh, like 30% of them they take out every few months, and they put in fresh fuel rods for efficiency. And the ones that come out are hot, and by hot, both temperature and radioactivity. So they stick them in these big pools of water. They look like giant swimming pools. And they're right there at the facility. And those, those things will boil that water off, if it's not constantly flooded with new water. And that's the worry, is that if, you did, if your generators went down, you couldn't flood it with water, you'd boil the water off, and then they would go and overheat. There'd be explosions and the release of massive amounts of radioactivity, uh, in the radioactive particles into the air. And so that could happen, but again, there's a lot of safety mechanisms, hopefully, that would prevent that. Okay, uh, another question from Joe. The silver tape that is used by air condition on air conditioning ducts yeah would that work to seal a trash can lid yeah i asked that same question myself um okay and, and yeah it's a good question you know these are great questions because they're questions we all would wonder about and if you read online you'll see people say oh no the adhesive on the back isn't conductive and so right. it won't do any good right 
So I thought, okay, let's find out. And so I bought, you know, went to Lowe's and got a couple of different rolls. And, and then I also bought some very expensive copper uh, tape that's meant to shield against electromagnetics and, and leaking boxes and so forth. And so it's much, much more expensive, maybe 50 times as expensive a roll of duct tape, uh, this metalized duct tape. And what I found is they both work exactly the same. And the wow. reason is, is that the, the adhesive is so thin that when you press that tape on, you make really, really good connection between whatever you're taping to. And that little thin adhesive just you know, mashes flat enough that you're making metal-to-metal contact. Um, so I found no difference in performance of the high-dollar stuff and the cheap stuff. Gotcha. Okay, um, Linda had a question. We've kind of already covered that. Um, so I, I guess that's all the questions we have, I guess, from our users. So let's talk about this um, this device that I think you created, correct? Uh, uh, you talking protects, about the EMP Storm? Yeah, the EMP Storm. Yeah, so it's in the process of being created. Um, I guess it was about uh, maybe five or six months ago. Um, well, it, it, I don't want to disparage anybody. I was talking to somebody, and they were mentioning that there was a product on the market that was being touted as providing EMP protection for homes, and they took it apart, and they were, these are experts in the area. They took it apart and looked at it and said, uh-uh, no way. This thing is built out of $2 worth of parts, and it's it's not what it claims to be. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, is there a way to protect a home from an EMP? And the answer is sort of. Um, and, and I took that, that answer and sort of tried to run with it. Um, there's two threats from an EMP. One is the radiated energy that comes through the air, these strong electromagnetic waves, right? And the other is this huge conducted pulse that's going to come in through the power lines. You can't solve your whole house problem of the radiated waves unless you wrapped your whole house in something conductive. But you can save a few very sensitive items like radios and stuff, and many other things would not be damaged. Your refrigerator, your washers, and it's unlikely that they would all be damaged. Some might be, but most would probably survive if it wasn't for the conducted energy. If the conducted energy arrives at the home, they're gone. They're going to get blown up. So I thought, well, let's try and solve the conducted problem. Let's, let's, is there a way to put something on a home that will guarantee that that conducted energy gets stopped before it gets into the home and takes out everything in your house. And that's what I've been working on. That's the EMP storm. It's a, it's a type two surge protection device. Type two just means it mounts next to your breaker box and it connects into your main breaker. And essentially any disturbance that comes onto the power lines at, when it gets to your house, that EMP storm would clamp it or limit it or do something to it that would prevent it from being exceeding the levels of your appliances and your equipment in your home. So it would solve the conducted problem for your home. And that's what I've been working on. I'm essentially at the prototype phase now. I should be shipping production units by the summer. And, and this has been tested, I, I assume, as well. Well, that's, that's what the prototype is for. So the way okay. you test it is you have to – there's a couple different ways, but you have to test it to – uh, a standard called uh, UL1449, which is where they inject, you know, several different types of pulses, but these many thousands of volt pulses on it, and see how well it, it clamps and prevents the surges from going in. Now, all surge protectors are tested to that. They're sold in the U.S. So what makes the EMP storm different is that my, my testing doesn't stop there. The the problem with the with an EMP is really E1 and E3. 
E2, to be honest, all surge protectors that are worth their grain, what they were built out of, should stop it and not get into your house. But the E1 may come in and damage the surge protector before E2 even arrives. And then if the surge protector is damaged, E2 can come in and damage the home. And certainly when E3 arrives, which is a very slow building pulse, would destroy things in the house. And it would destroy normal surge protectors. So the idea behind this was develop a device that could handle E1, E2, and E3, all the conductive energy. And you have to handle them differently. Um, but that would make sure that you didn't have the really fast transient in the house, you didn't have the medium transient, you didn't have this really slow one. And that's sort of where the novelty is coming in. And so when I test it, I have to test those three different cases. And you can shoot really fast pulses, and that's, for example, you use a mill standard, 461. There's a conducted susceptibility 116 test that generates these really fast pulses. You test it and make sure it survives. And then you use UL1449 for these medium pulses that everybody expects it should survive. And then finally, for the slow pulses, you have to really ramp up an AC signal, like, you know, essentially like your power line is drifting up in seconds of time, and it has to be able to protect the home from that. And that's, that's new. That's, nobody's ever built that. Nobody's ever tested that. That's what I'm going to demonstrate before it's shipped. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, so with a carrying event you, um, or a CME, that device is really what we would need to protect our home electronics. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, as we pointed out earlier, the CME really doesn't have the radiated element that would bother small electronics. So, you, you know, you're not going to blow out your radios and that sort of thing. But it's still going to generate this huge conducted pulse that's going to come in on the power lines. And right now there is no, that I'm aware of, there's no surge protection device on the market that would protect your home from that large CME-type disturbance on the power lines. And I wrote a bunch of this out uh, with some pretty pictures. If, if you want to look, it's just on empstorm.com, where I have a whole bunch of information about it. And people can learn more about what, you know, what it's supposed to do and why it helps and that kind of stuff. Awesome, awesome. So, um, question, I hope it's not too personable. Is EMP going to be affordable for the average Joe? Well, yeah, it's funny. The EMP storm, um, when I first set out, I thought, well, how much should this cost? I hadn't really even designed it yet. People were saying, I want to order one now, I want to order one now. So I set the price at $300. I thought, well, oh, I have installed EMP filters that were ten dollars to $20,000 uh, at yeah. businesses. And, you know, they're very expensive, but it's a different technology. Those were inline, big inductors and capacitors. You know, they, they're very expensive parts. So this is different. Um, it's a small box, you know, six by nine goes on the wall. And so I thought $300 seems like you should be able to build it for a few hundred bucks, maybe make 50 bucks a profit or something. And so I've started designing it and I realized, ah, oh, you know, one stage isn't going to be enough. I could have three stages and put it all together. And so now I'm looking at my cost and it's like, you know, 200 ish dollars for one of these units, my cost, just the parts, you know, and I'm like, right. okay, you know, $300 is probably as cheap as you could do it. And that's what I set all the pre-order prices at. I don't know you know, if later that will have to go up or not, but I wouldn't jerk anybody over now. So that's what I said. No, about. that's uh, that's way affordable for most people. So yeah, that's. I mean, even if it was six hundred dollars, I think that would be affordable to um, for people uh, as much as we um, spend on our communication equipment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, big question: Which do you think is going to happen first? A CME Ooh. or an EMP? I mean, I, I mean, because you know we have North Korea, we have yeah. different parties in the in the world that really want to destroy America, 
And, uh, yeah, I know you go to all these EMP and all these conferences, and you probably have more intel than anyone I know. Which do you expect first? Yeah, I would say the EMP I would expect to happen first, but I would also say that the, the CME is a certainty. You know, the EMP is an unknown whether it would happen or not, although, like you said, there's some bad actors out there that certainly could do this, and you could see reasons why they would. Um, and so I think it's more likely that happens first. But the, the, the solar events, those happen about every 100 to 150 years, and we're past due. And so that is going to happen, whether that happens next week or five years from now, I don't know. But it's, it's a guarantee. It's going to happen. Wow. Okay. So um, in, I, I know you're, you've, been, um, you've helped campaign. I, I know this documentary is, is all about getting our government and people – charged up about calling our senators to get our power grid protected. Do you see yeah. that happening? Do you see that happening? Um, you know, I'm not connected enough with the power industry to know what they're doing. Um, I have heard from folks who who were working. Uh, for example, one of the guys worked down on the Texas grid area, and he said there were there were steps being taken. There were precautions being put in place. But I didn't get specifics. I probably couldn't tell me, uh, you know, even if I'd ask him. So my guess is just a guess is that that this sort of pressure, you know, on the politicians flows its way down, and people usually go for the low-hanging fruit first. And so if there's some easy, relatively modest improvements that could be made, a detection circuitry, those sorts of things, I could see that being done. I don't think there's been a national attention brought to it in any way. And I'm a part of some user groups where I get to see various emails of uh, people's concerns and things. And, you know, that's the big concern for EMP is that if the power grid, you know, not briefly gets disrupted, but gets disrupted where it's down for six months or a year, you know, life in the United States changes and not in a good way. And so that's a big concern of, you know, very smart, very concerned citizens. They want to see our power grid, um, at least the bulk of it, survive some kind of attack like that. Right. Um, another question. Yeah, you know, that's all I do is ask questions. I guess <laughs> the EMP bags are they different than like a mylar bag? Yes, they are different. Um, the EMP bags, uh, the, the ones that I have, or others. Uh, you know, I like the dry shield bags or various types of them, but they're meant really for anti for being anti-static bags. So you can put your electronics in them and. You can't accidentally zap them, you know, if you build up some charge. Uh, and so they're specifically designed um, to really sort of prevent that type of transfer of energy. And mylar bags really aren't meant for that. And the, while they do look very similar, they don't have the same protective properties. And so, you know, you can't just take like a food mylar bag and think, oh, I'll get the same, you know, protection as I would if I go buy that, that EMP bag. There really is a very different level of protection. Okay. And the EMP cloth, that just seems, I don't know, it seems kind of interesting. I see it on your site, um, I, and you have the bags on there as well, and there, it seems all reasonable prices. Um, it, um, the EMP cloth, it, it must have metal fi- fabric or yeah. um, going through yeah, it. Is that what it fibers. is? Okay. Yeah, exactly okay. right. And there's, a, there's probably 50 kinds of conductive cloth. I, I bought about 25, I think. I have a picture on the website there of all the different types I bought. And, you know, I bought a few yards of each one, and I tested their, well, a lot of things, how well they worked for one, 
and how easy they were to handle, did I think they would survive very long, could you sell them, you know, all of the questions that if I'm going to make something, I need to know what's good. And I narrowed down to two out of those 25 that I thought, you know, either one of these would be okay to make like a generator cover or a car cover, wrap up your, your rifle with or whatever. Um, and both of them were about the exact same price. I ended up picking the one I thought that would last the best. It has stainless steel fibers in it. You can't really see them unless you get really like, you know, like a magnifying glass to it. And it just feels like a denim, like a sort of a, it's a green denim material. And you can sew it together just with any sewing machine. Um, now, it's not as good as, you know, a solid conductor because it's a threading, you know, and so there's little tiny gaps between the threads and stuff. But it does provide a reasonable 20 to 30 dB of shielding, anything you wrap it around. And, you know, again, that's 90 to 95 percent of the energy of the, of the field reduced. And, and that's, you know, that's enough that you're like, okay, this thing should survive if it's unpowered and it's getting 95 percent of the signal reduced. So that's the idea behind the cloth. Okay, that brings up a question. I've seen some um, Faraday cages that were made out of chicken wire. Yeah. Um, and the, the I mean, their argument was if it's grounded or not grounded. My argument was the thing has holes in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good so, question. No. So, yeah, I got asked that. In fact, I saw somebody's YouTube video where they were – they were basically saying, "Oh, you gotta have your chicken wire." And I thought, "Does that, you know, is that really gonna work?" They're so, such, the holes are so many and so large. Um, it, it didn't make sense that it would work very well. So I did a YouTube video on it where I do a aluminum foil box and I do a chicken wire box, and I show the signal level differences, and it's pretty dramatic. The chicken wire, you know, it does some shielding, maybe 10 dB, but it's not the 50 dB that you get with the aluminum foil, and so. You know, I, it's pretty convincing that, yeah, you get a little bit, but it's not a replacement for a good quality Faraday case. Well, thank you for that. And so they were arguing, again, about the grounding and not. I'm like, gosh, oh, yeah. you, you're missing, you're missing the, I mean, the holes. I mean, so do they, they don't need to be grounded. Am I correct on that? Yeah, they do or not need help? to be grounded. It's, it's an old misunderstanding. There, there are lots of good reasons to ground conductors, okay? If you're building a box, an electronics box, and you have a, a plate protecting one system from another, you ground that plate. And there's a reason you ground it, and that's because you're in the near field of the emissions and you want to terminate into a ground. And so it has to do with the type of electromagnetic coupling. But when you're in the far field, meaning you're far away from the source, the, it's a wave now. It's not, a, it's not a, you know, like a closed thing that comes through a ground. It's a wave that's propagating through space. And as it propagates down through the air, you know, it's this freestanding wave. When it hits a conductive barrier, grounded or not, two things happen. Part of it gets reflected, which we're thankful for. So, the, you know, the conductive barrier will reflect part of that energy. And part of it gets absorbed as it passes through the conductive barrier. And that doesn't matter if it's grounded or not. It's a material different, uh, discontinuity between what it's traveling in and what it hits. And so it doesn't have to be grounded. Now, should it be grounded is another question, and the short answer is it probably doesn't help you at all. In all of my experiments, if you take a, any kind of like a leaded wire and you ground your, your item, the inductance of the, la the lead, the ground connection, is so great that you're not going to pass any energy, high-frequency energy, down it anyway. And so my conclusion was I never saw any real improvement by attaching a ground wire. So... In general, I always say, no, don't bother grounding it. If you have a big Faraday cage like a trash can, you can just set it somewhere. You don't have to worry about you know, drilling a rod and trying to ground it or something like that. Okay. 
Next question just came in um, through a text message. He knew I was going to interview tonight. Um, cell phones, people, preppers, um, a lot of people want to be able to have a little bag to put their cell phone in. And we tested the cell phone in some ordinary, you know, like Faraday bags, and they mm-hmm. didn't, it, and they still worked. Um, right. So how, what kind of bag, what do we need to just, I mean, this is kind of to go off the grid as well. Stick your phone in a bag so it would, you know, the signal itself would sure. not be received or tracked. What would you recommend there? Yeah. Um, so somebody just recently asked me about that. Um, so there's two different things, and, and people sometimes misunderstand this. If I take, for example, I do a video of this where I take a two-way radio. You can think of that as a cell phone for a minute. But, and I slide it in a, a really good quality EMP bag, and I tape it up really well. And I, I go to my other radio, and I talk. It gets through that bag no problem. It just, right. you're, you're like, whoa, I must have a defective bag. Well, no, it's that your two-way radios have a dynamic range of about 120 dB. That means they can pick up teeny, teeny, tiny signals or really, really big signals. They have to be able to adapt to both. And they have this internal circuitry that corrects for the signal level. And so to block a two-way radio or a cell phone, you have to really have about 100 dB or more of shielding. Now, it depends on how strong the signal is, you know, if your cell phone or you're far away from the tower and stuff. But you have to have a lot of shielding, more than you would ever need to protect from an EMP. So what I'm saying is to fully block a cell phone signal or a two-way radio signal is way more than you need to survive an EMP. Now, you can still do it. You can still block a cell phone signal. You, if you, for example, put a cell phone in the EMP bag and seal it up and then take that bag and put it in another one, you may very well block the cell phone entirely. Certainly, if you go to three layers, you will absolutely block it. You'll even block a two-way radio, which is even harder to block. So it takes a layered approach. They essentially add up. DBs add when you uh, add multiplications, you. what they call it. But they add up. So if one gives you 50 dB and you put it in another one, you get about another 50, maybe 45 and now you're at 95 dB of shielding. And if you put it in a third one, maybe you're at 130 or something. And so you can layer like that to get really, really high levels of shielding. It's should a lot of trouble bags, to go through, but it can be done. Should the bags touch each other or have an insulator between them? Yeah, they should have an insulator between them. Uh, fortunately, the, the EMP bags, the type I'm talking about, they are already non-conductive. The external okay. parts of them are not conductive. So you can just stack gotcha. them right on top of each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, how far in the ground, if you wanted to protect a laptop, <laughs> ah, I know yeah. this is another, how far, how, how far will uh, EMP go into the dirt? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny about six months ago, I, somebody asked me that question and I thought, they said, you know, I'm not going to buy any of that. stuff. I'm just going to dig a hole in the yard. And I'm going to bury everything. And of course there's a lot of reasons you don't want to bury things outside from weather and flooding and all these other things. But it was a fair question. You know, would it protect it? And so I did some research. I read some papers on the shielding of soil, and it ends up it varies drastically whether you're in, like, a desert-type soil or a very, you know, like ah. an agricultural moist soil. It makes a huge difference. But in the best case, so the best case where you get the best shielding, it would, you'd still have to bury it about three meters and so about 10 feet into the ground to get a reasonable level of shielding. I think that was like 30 dB of shielding. So to get realistic, you know, about it, you think, am I really going to dig a hole that's 10, 20, 30 feet into the ground where I can sit? You know, probably not. 
But if you already had one, you know, somebody had a storm shelter somewhere or something, and you could get deep enough, you would get some shielding from it. Okay. How about underwater? It's a very similar phenomenon. Yeah, electromagnetic Same. waves okay. do propagate through water, and you have to get pretty deep, deeper than a swimming pool for sure, before you get a lot of protection. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then uh, this one's a personal question for me, from me. Um, how about a shipping container? Is it not too... Yeah, that, well, that's the question I have yet to answer. It's probably the one I get asked most now that that I don't know the answer to. The And I promised I would do it this year. Um, I'll get a shipping container, and I'll set up my test equipment, and I'll measure the shielding effectiveness of it. My guess is, just a guess, because I haven't done it, is it's not great because of the seams of the shipping container around the door. Um, right. That if the energy came in that direction, I suspect you'd still get quite a bit inside. Um, but I suspect also, as one of my readers wrote me and said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we hang down a conductive curtain in front of the door? Wouldn't be very expensive. Might cost you a hundred bucks or something, a couple hundred bucks. And then that might take care of that, uh, the gaps, essentially the seams around the door, and you'd have a really large shielded container. I suspect that might work pretty good. Um, I'm going to try that, and I'll let you know what I find out. Sweet. Okay, great. Um, also, let's talk about your YouTube channel. Because that's um, a lot of people have. That's uh, you know, if they haven't read your books, I think they've probably at least seen you on your YouTube channel. Would you, would you um, kind of tell everyone what information they can get and what you've done on the YouTube channel? Sure. Yeah. So my YouTube channel is just disaster prepper, easy enough to find. Um, and most of my posts on I'm not a big YouTuber, but most of my posts are all related to these different types of tests that I do. So. If I'm testing, you know, the shielding effectiveness of like that, that chicken wire, for example, I do a video of it so people can see, you know, I don't just tell them, ah, it doesn't work or whatever. I do a video so they can see my testing of it and what it looks like. And then I, I try and answer every question that people write because a lot of people will write and say, yeah, but you didn't do this or did you try this? And I'll try and address their questions. So most of my, my YouTube videos are related to EMP just because there's so many questions out there I'm trying to you know, in a sense, kind of do a service and answer them in a way that people can follow along and understand. Okay. And then if you will tell us about, um, what, are you working on any projects right now um, that oh, you're going to ever? <laughs> you okay. Yeah. Yeah, I do various things. So I, I'm a, a person of different hats, I guess. And so, of course, day jobs at NASA and write books on the side that keeps me busy and I'm working on this EMP storm which is just really exciting to do and then I do consulting I do private consulting for companies uh, for EMP hardening of systems uh, I, usually they make me sign NDA so I can't tell who it is but big companies on occasion will reach out to me and say hey we've got a you know a big data system we're really worried about and you know it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in one way or another you know how do we go about protecting it and so I've worked on that for a number of years and and so between those things keeps me pretty busy. Okay. Um, an, another one that just came to mind, I know you have some bags on your website. We're going to get to your website in a minute for sale um, to EMP Protect. But what is the um, what is the thickness? You said 30 dB is what people need to protect most electronics. Is that correct? Uh, no, I recommend 50. Uh, my 50? my goal okay. is yeah 50 dB corresponds to a reduction of about 99.7 percent. That sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. 
But if you take the 50,000 volts per meter and you divide it down by that, that ratio, you get to a level that most electronics can survive. And so I always say if you can get 50 dB or better, you've almost guaranteed the survival of your equipment. And so that's the EMP bags that I sell, and you can find others. I, um, they will do 50 dB across frequency, all the way from 100 kilohertz up to 1 gigahertz, which is what you want for an EMP. And so you can only one layer of a bag. You don't have to double them up or anything like that. Um, and you'll get that 50 dB. And so that's the number I recommend to people. And that's the ones you have on your website that right, I'm, I'm right. looking at. Okay, okay. And you said a garbage can is how many dB? Like the galvanized, and if you put the um, silver tape or the gasket around there. Yeah, so without the tape of the gasket, you might be getting 10 or 20 dB. If you put oh. the gasket in or the tape around it, you can get 50 dB. Okay. Okay, that's yep. good. So they, that's great. They become a very effective ferreted cage if you gasket them. You can even get more than fifty if you do a really if you have a good tight fitting lid. Okay, because your bags the 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 bags are limited in size. I know you're saying there's some bigger ones, but mm -hmm. yep. when, you, when you put when you put a ham radio and you have a laptop and mm -hmm. you know charging and some you know things that it, it it gets bigger than a bag. Then you can just sure. I guess buy different bags, but. I know a lot of preppers have already started with the idea of galvanized, you know, garbage can. They just need mm -hmm. to do it right. And some of the smaller equipment, see, I, I do recommend all the all the preppers in our and the PrepperNet organization to have um, communications EMP proof in your vehicle. Um, and and so they need the bag. Bag would be perfect for that. So sure. Yep. Yeah, and people who are really concerned, like maybe they're storing something really, really important or very sensitive, you know, they might put it in a bag and then put it inside the, the garbage can or something just oh. to get two layers of protection. Uh, just a question came out. USB drives, do they need to be protected? Uh, in general, yes. Um, okay. There's a, you know, they have a lot of very sensitive electronics in them, and even though they're small, my guess is there's a good chance they would end up something going wrong with them. They're very sensitive. I've had lots and lots of USB problems over the years with electronics uh, being disturbed by pulses and things. So I would say, yeah, I would definitely store that. Okay. Will my podcast be working after the grid goes down? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'm just, uh, just kidding there. Um so, um, and the cloth, you recommend the cloth, which is a, um, a works as a gasket around the trash cans, correct? Or is that, um, no, the, well, the, the gasket is different. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the gasket, it is, so, it is funny. It is sort of a, um, it's like a squishy, it's kind of like a squishy sort of metalized cloth with like a little foam inside of it. That's what the gaskets are. Um, but what I recommend, so it's gaskets for cans and other things like that, and then the cloth is this stainless steel fibers really sewn into uh, a cotton backing so it's, it feels just like a denim really but every other thread or maybe every third thread is a stainless steel thread and so you end up with a very very fine mesh conductive mesh okay also uh, this is a, a question please take it tongue-in-cheek on all your videos are you uh, do they actually lock you in a room because it looks always looks like it's a tiny room that you're in that you're locked in and can't get out and got to produce this video. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually um, that's my that's my test chamber. That's a um, okay. It's a big shield room, is what it is. It provides about 120 dB of shielding, and gotcha. they're meant for testing 
like if you're going to test a radio system, but you don't want to broadcast it everywhere, you go inside these shield rooms and close them up. And they're, you know, they're, they're something to get in and out of. But, uh, but, yeah, I like to do a lot of my testing in there so nobody else is bothered by the emissions and stuff I'm doing. Okay, so they, they don't actually lock you in there. You go in there willingly. Okay. Uh, yeah, I go, I go I, in there willingly. <laughs> um, so tell us, um, I, I, you know, the products you have for sale. Tell us um, how the people can get to your books. And are you speaking? I know you're going to be in a documentary. Uh, the Black Sky event, but tell us what what I mean. How we can get in touch with you? How we can buy your products? And where are you going to be? Sure. Um, so I do I do talks every once in a while. I go and travel to either uh, emergency you know management seminars or disaster preparedness groups and that kind of thing. But it's always kind of a last minute. It's usually a couple of weeks notice. Um, the next one I'm going to I think is the Heritage. Uh, down in North Carolina, uh, there's a big oh, yeah. pepper conference down there. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, down there, and I think it's in April, and do a big talk on EMP. Uh, so if folks want to come down let there me, and see me, they can do that. Let me stop you right there. So Heritage yeah, sure. Life Skills, I've been yep, there every year. Um, every I've been there every year, um, except the first year. It's a wonderful conference. Um, Jan that puts that on is amazing. Yep. She's actually one of my city leaders for in PrepperNet um, for the Waynesville awesome. area. Um, we will have at least 200 to 50, 250 to 300 members from PrepperNet there. So it's always a great a great conference. And um, you can, I think that um, uh, Carolina Resources is that the, I cannot even yes. remember. That sounds right. Jan yes. is the one I always talk to as yep. well. Yep, Jan is amazing. Love that lady. And um, so I'll be there, so I'll get to meet you for the first time. But um, if you're listening to the podcast, that's coming up in April. Um, it's 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 amazing. It's hands on. Uh, a lot of great people there. It's it it becomes family because you you just go at you know year after year. So I hey, am looking forward to you being there. Okay, keep going. So yeah, so I so I do the talks on occasion and. Uh, of course, my YouTube channel is Disaster Prepper. My um, my website, which is where a lot of people find me, is DisasterPreparer.com. You can also type Disaster Prepper. I have that domain that just routes to it. Uh, my product is on. All my products are on there. Um, the one that I'm you know I'm really excited about is the MP Storm. I appreciate you letting me talk about that. You can either go to MPStorm.com and check that out, or you can go to Disaster Preparer, and there's a link on there for the MP Storm too. Um, so that's kind of, and there's a contact me on the pages. So, and I try and answer everybody's questions and emails and that kind of thing. And so you have audio books, 11 book series. Is your last one out? Did you say the 11th one is out yet or not? Uh, the 11th is out. The 12th is the final book and it's coming out later this year. And yeah, they're all on uh, Kindle and paperback and audiobook. And audiobook. So that's, um, and then you've got, I know your, your handbooks are amazing. That, Actually, in the library, I have to to kind of grab and go. Um, you know, both of them are in made it, so you made it in great. there. Um, great, great. <laughs> and then you got all the products. I'm looking on your on your site that we've talked about. And um, when do you uh, expect the um, EMP storm will be shipping to? You know. Yeah, so my schedule right now has them shipping sometime in the middle to end of summer. Uh, you have to get through UL testing, which takes a little time. Um, but, yeah, sometime this summer, there should be first units are going out. I, I, you know, I'm not, a, 
I'm not a big production house. This is a, was really a labor of love, if you want to know the truth about it. I want to know if I could do it. And, I, you know, and so then we're playing in naysayers. I'm convinced now it's all doable. I've done enough of the simulations to know. But it was kind of a labor of love. And so I've said I'm only going to probably build 500 of these things. And I'm taking, I took pre-orders, and a lot of people have ordered them. And when I hit the 500 mark, I'm going to cut it off for now. Uh, until I get all those units shipped, because I don't want to get behind, and people are like, "Where's my? You know, I ordered that four months ago. You never." So I'm going to just wait and let. If I get 500 in, I'll ship those at the summer, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to build more after that or not. Have you thought about doing like a um, Kickstarter on that? Yeah, I thought about it. that. Was where I was going to start, um, and it ends up that to what I didn't want to do was just have people donate money to it. Um, what I wanted people to do was to like to pre-order one and say, hey, you know, I, I want to put money in this because I want right. one, right? And, and there were plenty of people who would have just donated, you know, here's 20 bucks, I want this to happen, but I wanted people who really wanted one. And so Kickstarter won't let you do that unless you have a, already a prototype you can demonstrate. And I wasn't there yet, and I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on this sort of in my free time, and I'll just go to my audience. I have a pretty good mailing list, and I just send out lists, you know, an email to them and say, hey, I'm going to build this thing. If anybody wants one, they can pre-order one. And, and lots of folks did. A lot of folks wrote and said, hey, I want one. I want one. I don't want to be on the list before, you know, you decide you're not going to take it anymore. So it's been enough. I actually got enough to do all of the, the testing and the building and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, I didn't have to do a Kickstarter. I may later if I decide I want to raise capital for some reason, but I kind of doubt it. Okay. Um, and so you told us the your URL, your website, your books. Okay. Uh, another question comes up. EMP ferrites, is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, mm -hmm, ferrites. What, what, yeah, so you're wondering what those things are, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Yeah, so ferrites are really just a, a magnetic material, a, pyril, a, a material with high um, a high ferrous content. And what you can do is put them around a cable, this is their typical use, and if you route a cable, you know, the energy goes through the cable and this ferrite's clamped around it, it creates a magnetic field through that, that ferrous material that, that tries to prevent um, the signal from changing, is the way to think about it. So if a pulse comes on that cable, that's trying to change the amount of current flowing, and the ferrite resists that. It acts as sort of like a little breaker for that, uh, you know, it sort of suppresses that change in energy. And so what it ultimately does is it uh, dissipates that energy and, and doesn't allow the pulse to go past the ferrite. So it acts as a little filter for your cable. And we have these all over the place. People just don't know it. In every power cord that goes into your laptop, there's a ferrite. That's that little round nub that you see close to where you plug it in. There's usually a little round nub. That's a ferrite in there. And they're oh, trying right. to keep transients. Yeah. And so if you, if you look at ferrites, there are many different types of materials, but... I looked at them around the industry and said, you know, what we need is a really good broadband ferrite that would, you know, very, very well protect against uh, these pulses that might come in. And those are the ones I resell on the website. Again, you can buy them other places. It's fine. They're in different sizes, different places. Um, but I will say this about ferrites. They're really good, at, and I have a video on YouTube that shows how they work. So it's, it's really interesting to watch how it suppresses a little transient. But they have a limit. They get saturated if you put too much energy through them, and then they stop working as well. And so they will not solve the problem of the conducted pulse that comes in from the EMP on your home lines. They're just, they're just not nearly enough. They can't take nearly that amount of energy. They'll just get saturated, and the energy will come right through. So they're meant for small problems, like a lot of people put them on their wires for their solar panels. 
um, you know, they hook their solar panels up and they go, well, how do I protect my solar panels? And the best you could do, at least until I develop a model specifically for solar panels, is to take some ferrites and put on those cables to help suppress the energy that might flow out to the solar panels. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. That's just unbelievable. These are questions I know that have come up over the years in PrepperNet as as meetings. And, I mean, people, again, until they find you, it's always what's the right answer, you know what I mean? And now, now we're getting that information out. So, um, so if they want to contact you, they can go to your website. Um, yeah. Which is? Um, uh, DisasterPrepare.com. That disasterpreparer.com. Right, and right at the top, there's a contact me button, and uh, that just sends me email directly, and so that's the best way to reach me. Well, Doctor Bradley, I, it has been a pleasure having you on. I can't wait to meet you um, at Heritage Life Skills. And yeah, great, um, that's great seeing you. Yeah, keep doing the good work, and I'm gonna um, again. Um, I may ask you for a refund on the books. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm thinking how many credits I have. I think I have five credits, so that would last Uh, me for your – I mean, because I listen to a book. I kind of go all in when I do that. Um, But, yes, I'll have all your books listened to by then, um, especially your series, because I I enjoy reading. I I usually read several – I mean, 100 books plus a year or listen. My wife goes, that's not not reading. Well – uh, so I, I do a combination of both, but um, yeah. Thank you for thank you for coming on, taking time out, and I'm going to post on the podcast so all my listeners can can listen to it, and I'm going to post your information on our Facebook page and on the com you know the comments uh, details about this podcast. And thank you very much, and um, I'll see you in April. All right, thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you. Have a great evening. Hey guys, that what a incredible amount of information. I'm, this is crazy. I mean, these questions that we've had for so long, um, I've had. You wouldn't believe how many people ask ask me about the ground, the shipping container, garbage cans, and we all do this stuff. And we go on the internet and we find different people, and they say different things. I mean, this guy. I mean, Arthur Bradley. He works for NASA. He does this as a living. He tests this stuff. I believe he's very credible, someone that we can trust. And if you're in a PrepperNet member or in the Carolinas, Virginia, where Heritage Life Skills coming up, Jan does an awesome, awesome show there. I'm teaching. I always teach a class there. I think this year I'm only teaching one. It's on survival groups. So, you know, come on out to Heritage Life Skills. It's in, I think it's Carolina Readiness. You can look it up. Just look up Heritage Life Skills. Dr. Arthur Bradley, I think he's speaking probably on Saturday night. That's usually when the the keynote speaker is going to speak. So go get your tickets. Join PrepperNet.com. You know, we're we're take this idea of networking and preppers. You know, throughout the the nation, we got the best of the best when it comes to expert panel. Um, go check it out at PrepperNet.com. But guys, hey, thanks for listening. Um, we do have a Patreon account. This is the first time ever I've ever mentioned it, but you know if you have if if you want to support us, I don't even know the URL. You can appreciate you guys listening, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks a lot. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Prepping Academy podcast. Preppers unite.
at www.preppingacademy.com.